All right, thank you, praise team, for leading us in a time of musical worship. Uh, welcome to practice tonight. Um, it is definitely a joy and something I look forward to, just being able to fellowship and open the Word of God with you on Thursdays. As a group, we've been studying the book of Romans, and we're going to be finishing off chapter 9. And so you can go ahead and open your Bibles to chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 24 to 33. As you guys are navigating your way there, I do want to remind you um, that this is the last month of small groups, and we will have a next season uh, sign-ups coming soon. And we're going to do a little... Uh, Usually in the summer, we do things a little differently, and we're, we're going to do more of an inductive Bible study type um, thing, just so that you guys get hands-on experience with how to wrestle with the text and uh, really decipher and understand what a passage uh, says, and to be able to glean and um, be nourished um, through your time in the Word. And so we'll have more details for that in uh, the future. Um, another thing I do want to note, too, uh, some of you guys know this, but just to be uh, very public and official about it, especially if you were here this past Sunday, you heard that our own ministry associate, Chris, um, this will be, not this, but this upcoming month, the month of April, will be his last month with us before he transitions into a new um, position up in NorCal at um, Sunset Church in San Francisco. He will be the junior high director there. And so Chris has been a staple here in Praxis, faithfully serving for a number of years. And I count it a joy to not only serve alongside of him, but um, to consider him a, a good friend. And so uh, in this last month, make sure you do approach him. And uh, yeah, you can ask him how uh, we could be praying for him as well as just thanking him for the ways that he has ministered so faithfully here. Uh, I will be very sad to see him go, um, maybe a little mad too, but it's okay, it's for, for God and his glory. Um, in other words, we are, uh, something you guys might have also picked up is we um, are gaining uh, another intern within Praxis. Alessandro is transitioning from Beacon. Um, he's been on staff at um, Lighthouse for quite some time, and now his main focus will be the Praxis ministry. And that's why you might have seen him at retreat. He started um, consistently attending at the beginning of this month. And so that will help us um, provide some stability, recoup some loss that uh, we have from Chris. But all in all, even though it may be a short season of change and transition, we look to the Lord and how he will provide and continue to be at work here in our fellowship group. Well, with that, we are in Romans chapter 9. Our passage for tonight is verses 24 to 33. So I will go ahead and read our text for us, and then we will pray for the Lord's blessing upon our time. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. This is the word of God. Even us whom he, God, has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the numbers of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. 
For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Verse 29. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. God, this passage may be a bit harder than what we're used to, a lot of Old Testament references, a lot of things that appear fuzzy to us. But Lord, we pray that you would show us the richness of your word, how it is applicable, how it is for our profit, that it might equip us to do good works for your glory, and we might be changed and transformed. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to behold uh, the richness of this passage, and in so doing, we'd see Christ and the wonders of salvation, how in your sovereignty you have ordained uh, how you will redeem your people. And it is not something random or uh, conjured up as a last-minute thing, but, Lord, that this is something in your wisdom you have orchestrated and decreed from eternity past, that we might behold um, the glory of your Son and have impressed upon us your wisdom so that we can trust you for everything, for life um, and for all that has been given to us uh, to esteem Christ. And so we ask for your help now uh, to navigate through this text and not only understand it intellectually, but Lord, for it to cut to our hearts and change us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a bit of a recap. Uh, We spent last week diving into the deep end of theology and examining Paul's arguments and support for the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election, which sounds very intimidating, uh, but it's God's sovereign free will to choose whom he will save. And to summarize our passage, um, our previous passage, the doctrine of election highlights and displays God's character. It presents to us his mercy, his compassion, his power and glory when he rescues those who are unworthy of it. And the doctrine of election also teaches us, distinguishes God to be in his own separate category as creator. That salvation is his prerogative, his right. As God, he exercises free reign to extend mercy and show compassion to whomever he wills. And so when he plucks hell-bent sinners from plunging headfirst to destruction, it is sheer grace. And the wonder of the gospel and the comfort of election is those whom he predestines, he calls, and those whom he calls, he justifies, and those whom he justifies, he will glorify. And God will see to it salvation is on him. Now in our passage tonight, Paul continues this train of thought. He expands on the wonder of God's saving work. 
Uh, We know it's not reserved for the smart, for the wealthy, for the skilled. It is not contingent upon our accomplishments or our failures, whether we've grown up in the church or we've lived a worldly lifestyle. It's not even based on pedigree and heritage. And you have to realize how this last one would have been startling to uh, these Roman readers because they were entrenched in the Scriptures. And if you comb through the Old Testament, you would be tempted at first glance at a cursory read to think God's allegiance, God's favor, well, that's wrapped up with a particular group. After all, we know the story. That God chooses, God selects one nation. The Jews are singled out and called forth by the Lord. And he sets his affection on Israel, making them a chosen people for himself. But that didn't mean, and we need to understand this, that didn't mean automatic salvation for everyone in the entire nation. As Paul mentioned earlier back in Romans 9-6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So there's a distinction even within Israel. There's a difference from being a descendant of Israel and belonging to Israel. Now, if we fast forward to the New Testament, the Pharisees, the religious elite of Jesus' day, well, they didn't get this. Why? Because they presumed upon their privileged heritage. And you might recall in their showdown with Jesus, this is how they established the righteous standing. Right? They said, we have Abraham as our father. So we're legit. We're entitled as the people of the covenant. We must be good with God. But Jesus, what does he do? He rebukes them. And he says, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, in his sovereign wisdom, God could take these puny pebbles and bless them with the same bloodline. So ancestry is not the decisive factor in getting in. And you recall the Pharisees are confused. They overlook God's purpose for his chosen nation. They misunderstood. Yes, the Israelites were beloved, selected by God, but that's not because they were inherently special For all intents and purposes, God could have committed himself to any other nation, to the Moabites, to the Hittites. What makes Israel unique is God. God choosing them. God electing them. Just like centuries before with Abraham. Nothing, again, special about Abraham. And yet God took the initiative to call him forth. Why? Well, it's stated in that seminal verse. You might know it from the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so even from the get-go, we catch a glimpse of this, that God has bigger plans, bigger than Abraham and Israel because he's a big God, that they handpicked, singled out, were to be a beacon of light to the world, to be a blessing to the families of the earth, to be a vessel for salvation. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul unpacks the richness of God's plan, of God's electing plan, by 
teasing out various surprises to salvation. All the ways election manifested in salvation tell of God's wisdom, of God's grace, of God's glory. And the first surprise we're going to encounter is that salvation is broadened to the nations. Salvation is broadened to the nations. We've already kind of touched on this, but look again at verse 24. So Paul now transitions, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, as we might expect, but also from Gentiles, from the Gentiles. Paul begins by explicitly stating that God has called forth both Jews and Gentiles. Now as a preface, Gentiles is just a catch-all term, like a net, for non-Jews, people outside the nation of Israel. So pretty much everyone here, unless I don't know something. But the idea of the floodgates of salvation being flung wide was not a novel idea. I mean, it's not startling to us because we're not Jews, but the Jews were not accustomed to thinking like this. They were used to being God's special people, God's prized possession. But Paul reveals how God's election, his choosing, had always had the Gentiles in mind, involved other people. We again saw this, picked up a hint of this in Genesis 12 in the Abrahamic covenant. And in our passage, Paul bolsters his claim by also citing from the Old Testament. The apostle quotes from Hosea 1 and 2 in verses 25 and 26 of Romans 9. He says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So what's going on here? Well, you have to know the book of Hosea to understand. And it's a very fascinating book because if you ever read it, it's a story of God's faithful pursuit of his unfaithful people, which really is much of the Bible's storyline. But this lesson is vividly exemplified through the marriage of the prophet Hosea himself. Because in chapter 1 of the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea is commissioned by God to marry a woman named Gomer. Gomer. I mean, not a very attractive name, which maybe foreshadows all the ugly things that are coming the prophet's way. And what we discover as we read on is that Gomer is a harlot. Gomer is not faithful to her husband, taking many lovers to bed, having a number of illegitimate children. And this infidelity then captures the marital dynamic, the spiritual relationship between God and his bride, his people, Israel. That despite God's faithfulness, his steadfast love, Israel has spurned him to play the whore and chase after foreign idols. And for their unfaithfulness, God punishes them in hopes of turning them around, wooing them back. And he does this by bringing their adultery into the light. He says, all right, you committed these acts in secret. I'm going to change your name so everyone will know your crime. You were once privileged to be called my people, my beloved, 
But from here on out, because of your treachery, your betrayal, you'll be regarded as not my people, not my beloved. The exact opposite. I mean, this is pretty humiliating. Yet such an embarrassment wouldn't last forever. Hosea tells of future restoration. And in chapter 2 of Hosea, which is what Paul uh, cross-references here, God will persist, pursue sinners, and surprise them with a grand reversal. They will again be shown mercy. They will again be the beloved people of God. Those once cast out will be brought in. And then Gentiles fit this pattern, this mold, because they once were on the outside and now are being called and included, enfolded into the family of God. You see, the apostle wants to impress on us how astonishing this should be. This is a cataclysmic shift. Let me try to evoke the same kind of emotions and feel uh, that Paul is after. You know, on, on occasion, I make mention of my family, my sermons. I'm grateful to be married to my wife, Barry, and we have two um, entertaining kids, lovely kids. I don't know. Um, but what if on stage right now, I publicly declared, actually, Barry and I, we have a third child in our family. We just adopted him. Christopher Wong is now my son. That would be a little bizarre, right? A little random, kind of out of left field. Now, this is just an illustration, so sorry, Chris, in your dreams. Um, I'm just kidding, just kidding. I'm just sad Chris is leaving. This is my pathetic way of coping. But the reaction to such an announcement is similar to what Paul is trying to cultivate in us. That salvation ought to be that outrageous, even scandalous, if you will. It is the most dramatic announcement, a surprise that grace would be extended, not just to Israel, but brought into the nations, to even Asians and Americans and Gentiles today, centuries down the line. The people of God is comprised of not just Jews, but all people. It's no longer about geographical location or belonging to a specific ethnic group. In every place, salvation is possible by God's sovereign election. That in Jesus Christ, we are made sons of the living God. So let me ask, brothers and sisters, very point blank, have you lost the awe of grace? Has your heart grown callous and dulled to the mercy and compassion of God? Then we need to rehearse the story. We need to re-examine our origins. You and I are not the protagonists or the center of this universe. You and I, we're just like Gomer, the adulterer with no shot for redemption, no loveliness to warrant pursuit, and yet God has set his affection on you in Christ. He calls those who have no business being his own. John Newton is famous for saying, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. So simple and yet profound at the same time. I am a great sinner, yet Christ is a greater Savior. 
And so my exhortation to all of us, myself included, is that when we grow too accustomed to grace, we ought to mull over that first part until it brings us to the second. Because unless you are devastated by your wretchedness, you will not marvel at the privilege of being saved. Now thus far, sounds like a good deal, especially to us as Gentile listeners. But the astute thinker and studier of this passage might raise a question, maybe even an objection. Wait a minute. If God's salvation is for all nations, if it's broadened, if entrance is not through ethnicity, where does that leave Israel? Are they tossed to the wayside, abandoned, forgotten? Well, we're in for another surprise. Surprise number two. Salvation is still bestowed on the remnant. Salvation is still bestowed on the remnant. Resume in verse 27. And Isaiah cries out, so now Paul quotes another Old Testament prophet. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. This might seem like confusing stuff, but these verses, when we read them, they unfold both an indictment and yet they are laced with hope. Because God is true to his promises. He makes the nation of Israel vast, just like he had pledged to Abraham in Genesis 12. But there is a bitter pill to swallow. Though they were fruitful to fill the earth, to abound like the sand of the sea, their population as a nation didn't match, didn't accord with the numbers saved. It wasn't a one-to-one correlation. There's only a remnant. A remnant. Now, remnant is not a flattering word. You know, if you were out for dinner and you told your date, hey, you know, be grateful I'm giving you the remnant of my time. That date is not going to end well, right? It's probably going to end right then and there. Remnant implies less than majority, a minority. And here, uh, we're reminded of remnant of Israel is preserved, which begs the question, what about the rest? What happens to the majority of Israel? Well, verse 28 discloses for us. They were judged for misplacing their trust, for lacking faith in God. So the discrepancy between their literal and physical headcount and the remnant save boils down to this attitude. Most thought, I'm good with God because I'm a Jew. Only a few recognized, I'm actually good with God because of God. You see, the first assume salvation is owed. The second is needy, needy of an intervention, the election of God. The Israelites made the mistake, or most of them made the mistake, of taking pride in their religious duties, in their religious activity, their rules and practices, in their culture and customs. They esteemed themselves by their externals. And while our struggle might not be to puff our chest because we're Asian or we're Americans or whatever nation we are from, we're just as prone 
to justify our worth based on externals. We just wear different badges, right? We're quick to talk about Reformed theology, biblical counseling, or the latest trending Christian book. We take comfort in the number of years we've been at Lighthouse, the number of sermons we've heard, the number of people we've talked to about Christ. And though the stat sheet may be stuffed and packed as the sand of the sea, it doesn't mean squat if we're lacking the main and essential thing. The remnant here is saved not because of their spectacular accomplishments or respectable upbringing, but resting in God. In fact, it's all God. Look at verse 29. And as Israel, or sorry, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, speaking of Israel, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So here now, Paul cites Isaiah 1 to stress the power of God's grace. And you have to see the comparison being drawn. So on one side, you have the remnant saved, uh, an offspring preserved. And on the other, you have Sodom and Gomorrah. They're not the good guys, right? And we can feel this because our reaction is fast. We make snap judgment. Right? We think of these nations and what they are notorious for, these, this gross behavior, unspeakable debauchery. We can't imagine people as depraved and wicked as the Sodomites and those from Gomorrah. It is so easy to distance ourselves from that camp. Sure, we may sin, but our predilections and vices aren't as dark as Sodom and Gomorrah. There's us, and there's them. But Paul here would beg to differ. We're pinched from the same dirty clay. And so instead of drawing a dividing line, he's actually underlined that we would really be no different if it were not for the Lord. It requires an act of God. And it's right there in the text that he quotes from Isaiah. The Lord of hosts. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring. Now, Lord of hosts, this is a title that focuses, keys in on God's strength. You know, so this isn't a picture, as you might have thought, or as I might have thought as a baby Christian, of God playing host at a tea party, you know, passing out saucers, just being very hospitable with cups and cookies. No, this is host in the sense that he is commander-in-chief. He has a host of angels in his army, legions of divine beings at his disposal, awaiting his instruction, which is exactly what unfolds in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, when God judges the city. He is the Lord Almighty, and there's no mistaking it. And yet God's power is displayed not only in his perfect judgment, in how he demolishes and wipes out Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. His power is demonstrated in how he redeems a remnant that is just as susceptible that is just as vulnerable to committing the same kinds of atrocities as Sodom and Gomorrah, suffering the same exact fate, were it not for him and his saving grace. 
Think of it like this. Which one is more impressive to you? You know, if I could simply crush my enemy's car with my bare hands, I can't if you don't know, or if I can crush the car with my bare hands and still pull my enemies out of that vehicle and somehow make them my friends, right? That's pretty impressive. This is why election, the work of God, comforts and closes our mouths. We don't boast. We bask in his saving grace to the remnant. As the saying goes, there but the grace of God go I. There but the grace of God go I. And so we should not look at the serial killers we see on TV, the corrupt politicians, the raging Karens, the promiscuous coworkers we have, the selfish family members, with such disdain as if we are above them, breathing some air of moral superiority. Truth be told, apart from God being gracious enough to call us, to save us, unless he bestowed his salvation upon us, we shouldn't be surprised to be in the same spot, to be enslaved to the same kinds of sin. When we assume that we would fare better, we forget salvation is not by our will or exertion, but by the mercy of God. Without him, there be no remnant. That God saves and keeps us first is a bigger shocker than any scandalous sin we or others can commit. You see, in the end, God is doing something bigger than just broadening his salvation to the nations or or just saving a remnant like those preserved in Israel. He is revealing the glory of himself, particularly his sovereign work, how his salvation brings the estranged home. His salvation restores the vilest of offenders, even preserving them, though they are whittled down to a remnant. But the ultimate shocker is in how anyone is saved in the first place. And we reach our last surprise, surprise number three. Salvation is built on a stone. Salvation is built on a stone. Uh, Resuming in verse 30, Paul says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. We'll stop there. Now, this may seem elementary to us, a bit basic to us, because we are well taught. But Paul is pinpointing where the battlefield for salvation is found. The apostle contrasts Gentiles and and the Israelites once again, pursuing what each group is about, what they're striving for, what they bank their lives on. When he mentions that the Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness, Paul doesn't mean that they were only wicked, that they were only interested and consumed with the things of the devil. He's merely stating that they show no interest in the things of God. So that when they were finally convicted of their sins, it wasn't cloudy for them. 
You know, they couldn't point to their religious accolades or hide behind their piety. It was easier for them to accept the fact that they were sinners, to acknowledge how bankrupt they were. They needed the righteousness of another, a righteousness that is appropriated by faith. But the Israelites, well, the Israelites had the law. They were schooled in the holiness of God, the righteousness of his commands. And yet there was another lesson in receiving the law. There was another lesson that they failed to learn. The perfection of God and his decrees revealed in the law was also supposed to reveal the imperfection of theirs. But instead of seeing how far they fell short, they were striving to measure up. The problem was not with the righteous law, but what they did with the law. The Israelites got it backwards. They twisted it. I was thinking about this. It's kind of like the reading of Miranda writes. Uh, assuming a just and proper scenario, a perfect situation, when the police apprehend a person, they begin to recite those famous lines, right? You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. You have the right to an attorney like Corey or whoever you can find, and on and on. Now, the individual cuffed is not supposed to think to themselves, why, thank you, Mr. Officer. You are so nice. You're being so helpful in reminding me that I have the right to remain silent. What an incredible blessing. No. The person is supposed to realize in the reading of the law, man, the fact that I am being read the Miranda rights is indicative of the state I'm in, of the condition I'm in, that I must be guilty of wrongdoing. You see, the law of God leads us to righteousness by first exposing our unrighteousness. When we peer at it and see all the broken laws, it is supposed to be a reflection of a broken heart. It's to make it patently clear to us. So one of the purposes of the law is to devastate us to desperation so that we cry out for the merits of another. We plead for a Savior by faith. The law leads to righteousness through humility, not hard work. The law leads to righteousness through humility, not hard work. And to cling to the law is to stop short of the one it is meant to point us to. It would essentially be like if you attended a meet and greet of your favorite musician, actor, or athlete. And let's say, for the sake of example, the event is held in one of the auditoriums at UCLA. If you've never been there, this campus is huge. There are various signs established to point you in the right direction so that you make it there. But if you stopped at the first sandwich board with an arrow that read, meet Timothy Chalamet or Taylor Swift, whoever you like, and then you started hugging and kissing this sandwich board, everyone around you would look at you as if you are insane because you are, right? That's not the point. The sign is not the same as the person. One is a guide for the other. One is the pointer. The other is the point. And to obsess over the law is to miss 
what it was intended for, who was meant to introduce. And that was the error of the Israelites. They were working for righteousness when they should have been looking for it. That's why when Jesus showed up on scene, they missed him. That's why when Jesus appeared, they stumbled. Paul again quotes from the book of Isaiah, specifically chapters 28 and 8, to reinforce this has been God's game plan from the very start. Look at verse 32. To resume, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This analogy, I'm sure, is a common experience for all of us. You know, you're trying to, maybe you're trying to multitask, walk around while looked, looking at your phone, and because you are distracted, you stub your toe or you trip on some crack on the road and you eat it. Well, this is what um, Paul is painting here. That the Jews stumbled upon a stone, which we discover from Isaiah into the New Testament. The stone, this cornerstone, is symbolic for the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the Jews stumbled for two reasons. They were so focused on what they were doing that they missed what God was doing. And second, because they were so sure of their standard for righteousness when God's plan of salvation didn't fit neatly into their system of works, they rejected it because it offended them, told them that they were wrong. And therein lies the irony. There's a principle to be gleaned. That as long as we are building our own kingdoms, as long as we are pursuing our conception of righteousness, we'll either stumble and miss God's or be offended by and reject the work God is doing, the righteousness he provides. This is God's stone which later on is recapitulated and expanded and given more detail, told to us as the cornerstone, Christ, our cornerstone. And back in the ancient times, they obviously didn't have all the tools and equipment that we have in our modern era, but they could still construct some pretty impressive buildings, some massive ones like the temple. How? Well, the most important piece to their architectural design was the cornerstone. It was usually the biggest rock, and it was placed at the corner of the foundation because it would serve as an anchor, carrying and equally distributing the weight so that the building would hold. But here's the catch. There can only be one cornerstone. And when God draws up the blueprints for his plan of salvation, he sets his son, nothing else but his son, as the cornerstone. Everything is built upon him. And if you or the Israelites or anyone else won't accept it, well, then the infrastructure is compromised. Your life, maybe not today, but one day it will eventually crumble. And the reality is we are all builders. It's not a question of whether we're building, but what have we built our life on? What have we laid as foundational? Is it the approval of our parents, the comforts of a fat savings account, the affections of a boyfriend or girlfriend, 
the euphoria from indulging in a good meal, a nice vacation, a sexual experience? Is it in being fit and successful at work? If these things become the cornerstone to your life, then your satisfaction and disappointment will hinge on these objects, these idols, these pursuits, because you have made them foundational. And as good and great as some of these things can be, they cannot shoulder the weight of your expectations. They weren't designed to. One way or the other, they will eventually crack if you put too much weight on them and you will be put to shame. But what does Jesus announce in the Gospels? He preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, even as he winds down, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, namely himself. You see, nothing can sustain the soul but the one who has created us. And God has designated the perfect cornerstone who can bear the weight of our longings, our burdens, our sufferings, our hope, because he is the one who has borne our sin. He's dealt with our greatest problems so we can trust him for everything else. And Jesus comes to fulfill the sovereign will of his Father, to bring to fruition God's election, to surprise us in the loveliest way, which is the gospel. That God created us in his image so that we might enjoy fellowship with him, to be in relationship with our creator. But we have all fled him. We have rebelled against his commands. And we have decided we will play God. We have broken the law. And because of that, we deserve to be punished. And the punishment is firm. Treason against an eternally good and glorious God requires an eternity spent in hell. And yet God, in his mercy and compassion, seeing us in our helpless state, pursues us, sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, fully God, fully man, to reconcile the two parties. So that when Jesus dies on the cross, he does not deserve to be there. He is innocent, blameless, fully righteous, so that he can take on himself our punishment, our sin. And Jesus Christ is crushed so that the offer of salvation can go to the nations, can cross time and be extended to us today, that if we repent and believe by faith, admitting our fallenness, admitting our sinfulness, and yet looking to Christ, we would be forgiven. We would be welcomed back we would be brought in. This is the good news of the gospel. But before the gospel is ever good news, it is unswerving in telling us the bad news, that we can't make things right on our own, that we are sinners. The gospel is an offensive message. Admit that you are pathetic. Plead for forgiveness Trust and believe in a crucified Savior. Live for another. But this is no con or fool's errand. This is how God chooses and saves. By grace through faith. As Christ becomes the cornerstone for our lives from beginning to end. We rejoice because we behold 
the majesty of our Savior, the brilliance of His plan, the glory of God in salvation. Let me close with Jesus' words in John 6, verses 37 to 40. And just meditate on this as it kind of echoes all that we covered tonight. Jesus tells and teaches, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Let's pray. God, these truths are too marvelous for us. And yet, when we peek at your word, we are overwhelmed at your sovereignty, your wisdom, your grace and compassion. And yet, all that is required of us is to look and believe. Even a child can do that. And for to such belong the kingdom, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And we pray that we would be childlike in our faith, casting ourselves upon you, knowing that you have given us your son, that we may have life and life abundantly in him. And because of that, may he be the bedrock of our soul, may he be the cornerstone of our lives, and may we continually rehearse and rejoice the gospel message that salvation would team them and bubble forth from our hearts into our hands and feet and what we do, how we live our lives, that we might not esteem our own egos and our own worth, but Christ and Christ alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.